2: We've got a wonderful guest here today for Spirit in Action, Josette Jackson. I saw info on a workshop Josette will be offering here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, the last Saturday in February on Inclusivity 101 an especially appropriate topic for Black History Month of keen interest to me because Josette is in a very small minority as an African-American who is also a licensed unity minister. You may have heard over the years various interviews on Spirit in Action where I spoke with guests among Quakers, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Buddhists, and many more religious and non-religious groups eager to step beyond racism and segregation and find community that reflects the many identities and cultures of our wider society. Josette Jackson will talk to us today about the road to greater inclusivity and broader community, but also about other material she presents on, meditating on and manifesting peace inside and peace in the world, and the tool of nonviolent communication, something that I've started to use more frequently with impressive results. But I also want to remind listeners to this program around the country that I welcome your suggestions for future Spirit in Action guests, inspirational and educational world healers from your area whose work deserves a wider audience. I want Norton Spirit Radio broadcast to be locally relevant to you. Josette is here today because I saw a poster locally that let me know of her work but I'm counting on my listeners at KLOI on Lopez Island in Washington and KCEI near Taos, New Mexico and KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota and WOOL in Bellow Falls, Vermont. Listeners at these stations and many others are invited to connect me up with those treasured local workers for the good of our world. But for the moment... Let's head to Colorado, from which Josette Jackson joins us by phone. Josette, here's a great big welcome to Spirit in Action.
3: Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure being here with you today.
2: Now, you're going to be in Eau Claire very shortly, but right now you're in Colorado. Talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing here on the weekends of both the 19th and the 26th of February.
3: I will be joining the Unity Church of Eau Claire as their guest speaker on the 19th and the 26th, and my topic will be the Season for Nonviolence, 64 Days in 64 Ways, and I will also be doing a workshop on Sunday the 26th after the service at about 1230, and the title of my workshop is Inclusivity 101.
2: So, 64 Ways and 64 Days, what does that mean?
3: 64 Days and 64 Ways, I know I kind of get it uh, mixed up as well. It is a program that individuals can participate in. It covers 64 days, beginning Mahatma Gandhi's memorial anniversary, which is January 30th, and it runs through April 4th, Dr. Martin Luther King's memorial anniversary, Each day has a particular theme, and a person is encouraged to read the theme of the day, meditate on it, read the affirmations, and then there's action steps given for them to work on that particular theme for that day. It is a program to help them foster peace within themselves, and when we can create inner peace within us, it's much more easier to bring that peaceful presence in our families, in our communities, or with anyone that we're interacting with.
2: So peace, nonviolence. I mean, I connect both Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. with nonviolence. Are you particularly trained in nonviolence in some way?
3: No, I'm not. It happens to be an area that I am very passionate about. And is what I consider part of my own personal ministry that I bring to whatever community or group of people that I happen to be working with, especially this time of year with it being the season for nonviolence.
2: So we're going to get to inclusivity in a moment, but still more. When you're at Unity on the 19th and 26th of February... You've got a two-hour workshop, I think, you you have. Is this something they have to pre-register for? Can they be part of the second, not the first? How does this work?
3: The uh, workshop is only on the 26th, and anyone is invited to join into that workshop, whether you're a member of the spiritual community or not.
2: So 64 days and 64 ways. That's one part of what you're going to be doing here in Eau Claire. The other thing you're going to be doing is Inclusivity 101, What are you talking about there?
3: Inclusivity 101, the gentleman that made it popular was Sharif Abdullah, and he wrote the book Creating a World That Works for All. And this is a workbook program that comes out of his book. And practicing inclusivity would be uh, the easiest way I could put it is that it's the golden rule in action. And so for Christianity, the golden rule basically says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay? And most major religions or spiritual philosophy basically has that type of rule as a guide for people's behavior. Well, yes, it's not about convincing people the golden rule is a good idea. It's something the way we should interact with each other. It's really going beyond that and really speaking and acting towards other people the way that they would speak and act towards you.
2: Um, One of the ways that we can practice inclusivity is with respect to different races, different gender, gender preferences, there's many different ways. Do you address all of those, or are there particular ones that are important or central to you?
3: Well, the two areas we're going to address is how to practice inclusivity with yourself first and foremost. Because if we're able to do it with ourselves, then it helps to sensitize us to be able to do it with others. So first, working on practicing inclusivity with ourselves, and then we're going to take a quick look at how to practice inclusivity with the other. And that the other is defined by Dr. Abdullah as anyone who's not the same as you are.
2: Which I guess is everybody, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm expecting that there's probably some, I don't know, examples that you could point to where inclusivity was not being practiced. You are a person of color, and so you've probably experienced that. Of course, I experienced it in kind of reverse ways when I was in West Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer, where I was the white person in my village. How does inclusivity, how has it affected your life, or lack of it for that matter?
3: So one poignant example that comes from early in my adult life, and that is being called names that are derogatory. Okay? No one really wants, it doesn't feel comfortable when people call you names, okay? whether it's your shorty because you're shorter than everyone else, and being a person of a black culture in the U.S., Being called nigger is a derogatory term. So for someone to call me nigger, I mean, they themselves would not feel comfortable being called a name as well. And so if you yourself would not want to be called a derogatory name, then you take the necessary steps that you don't call someone else a derogatory name, no matter how befitting it would be.
2: And what's your experience in our culture? Is racism rampant? Have you? I mean, I think it only takes a couple people to really poison a pool, if you know what I mean. If you're in a class of 30 students and three of them are total jerks, it totally poisons the entire atmosphere. What's your experience? Are people open and willing, interested in practicing inclusion, or is there just a tremendous resistance?
3: First of all, this will be the first time I offer this particular workshop in Eau Claire. I have taught other diversity-type workshops that address diversity in general, that address the concept of white privileges. And what I find, whether the person is of the white culture or black or Chinese, that there is a lot of interest in it, especially since we've just completed an eight-year term having the first African-American president. So there has been lots of dialogue going on. It seems people are interested in bringing these topics out and discussing them. And so with my former church, Unity Church of Peace in St. Louis, we had Sunday talks that went on discussing the matter as well as a book group. And so I find people are interested. I find people are surprised that we are still dealing with racism in this day and age.
2: And do you think that it's getting better or worse? I'm afraid that my impression has been over the past year with the rise of increasing freedom to express what I think are some horrendous opinions, ideas, points of view that it's actually gotten worse or maybe it's just come out of the woodwork i am not really sure how to say it what's your impression
3: i feel like it's just coming out of the woodwork i think a lot of it was under the surface especially after coming out of the age of dr martin luther king which would have been my parents age we moving out of jim crow a lot of racism and biases went underground okay in the south it still was a little more direct But if you lived in the north or grew up in the north, as I did, then it was more indirect. And so, for example, in the south, if I remember a friend of mine who traveled to the south, it was me and a friend, and we went to a restaurant. And even though there were plenty of open seatings throughout the restaurant, that particular host sat me and my friend, both of us of the African culture, in the back near the bathroom, and we politely asked if we could be seated somewhere else, because when you sit near the bathroom, it's not the most comfortable place sometimes, especially a smell. So that's one of being treated differently, and we were the only people of color in the restaurant. And it's an example of being treated out in the open differently because of the color of your skin. And we really felt that's the way we were being treated, especially since there were so many open tables. Now, if you're at the north, it would be, for example, I had a friend of mine who had worked a position for five years. And it was, let's say, to try to keep it more general, they were working the position as a waitress in a restaurant. And they'd worked that position for five years, and during that five years they were given an assistant manager duties. And the promise was you work your waitress job and as assistant manager for the five years, and when the manager position becomes open then we will move you directly into the management position. Well, the five years went by, and the manager finally left, and my friend was ready to move into the manager position. And at the time when that happened, the owner of the restaurant decides that they were going to no longer do it that way, that they would open it up to everyone in the restaurant, and that my friend would have to apply with everyone else. Well, I consider this racism where the rules of a game, you tell people what they need to do in order to get a particular position, but then when they're ready to move in it and they're a person of color, you change the rule. And I see that type of covert racism when I'm in the North. And a bit more
2: overt in the South?
3: That's correct. And so for this day and age people because of examples within our society of people speaking out, of the fact that the whole discussion about race came about when a former President Obama took office, then it seemed to have come to the surface. And I don't know is it because of examples of people in visible positions or not. And I think even for me, as I grew up, I never spent a lot of time worrying about whether or not I was being treated differently because of my color. If there was something I wanted, somewhere I wanted to go, something I wanted to accomplish, I focused on the challenges that would keep me from doing that. So racism was never in the forefront of my mind. However, over the course of the last two years, especially with all the media attention and the movement, Black Lives Matter, and the mistreatment of young black, well, not even just young, just people of color by police departments, then I started paying attention. And then that's when I felt like I could do something. And the one thing I could do in my position was to at least begin a dialogue and find out where people's minds are about this not based upon media coverage, but ordinary people, people in my spiritual community.
2: So the workshop, Inclusivity 101, that you'll be holding here the 26th of February in Eau Claire, what should people come out of there with? They're going in with motivation, I think is your assumption. They already want to live up to the golden rule. And what should they be leaving with that they didn't have when they came?
3: A greater awareness Or, I'll put it this way, to be very conscious of the Golden Rule. And once you're conscious, then you can actually take action, conscious action, to apply the Golden Rule.
2: I'm just kind of wondering if these two things are connected. You're essentially training in nonviolence, orienting people towards peace and the inclusivity, the training people to be aware of the Golden Rule and in action seems important to me. After all, you know, Josette, this program is spirit in action. So there's actions that happen within, but I'm particularly interested in knowing what's going to happen in the outer world. So people will walk away. What do we hope they'll do differently?
3: They will be able to engage and interact and connect with people who are different from they are recognizing that they want to treat those people exactly the way that they would like to be treated. So to be actually conscious of it. We hear of the golden rule all the time. Okay, we can say it. We all feel like we do it. But do we really practice the golden rule? That will be the question. And to be conscious of whether you really do or not. And if you're not, then let's talk about what you can do so that you are actually practicing the golden rule. For example, I have two granddaughters, and they're six and seven. What we do so that they are conscious of caring for one another and treating the other person the way that they would like to be treated, if there's a piece of cake and there's only one piece of cake, then we ask one or the other of the two, to be responsible for cutting the cake. And when they cut the cake, we ask that you cut the cake so that the piece that the other person has is exactly the same piece that you would like to have. And so when they do, they don't cut one piece bigger than the other. They really strive the best that they can at their age to cut it in half. And then they don't choose what piece they get first they allow the other to select the piece they want. Now, most children, if a piece of cake is cut where one piece is bigger than the other, okay, more than likely they're going to choose the bigger piece. And then the person who's done the cutting gets the smaller piece. So when you practice inclusivity, what you want to do is make sure that what you're offering to another person, especially if you're going to get a share of it, You want it to be equal, so that regardless of what piece you take, everyone gets an equal portion.
2: Since I'm identified as white in our culture, and because I do care about the Golden Rule, I do care about how others are affected, and I do want to practice equality, I mean, after all, I'm a Quaker, and one of our testimonies is equality, right? You know, it's very important to me personally and experientially. I know a difference it makes. I am aware that sometimes I still feel impatient with the, maybe I'd say, mincing about words. If I said that you were black versus African American or a person of color, I have had, on occasion, people who've had very strong reactions because, no, that's not the right word, you have to use this word. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to oblige someone, but not everybody has the same lines, of course, so it sometimes feels a little bit like we have to tiptoe. I assume that's the kind of concern that you find people raising who do want to practice the Golden Rule.
3: Yes, it's a concern. And what I would suggest to someone who it is a concern, I mean when you're talking about the african American culture, I mean it starts it it would be even confusing to me. We started out as negroes and then it went to color and then it went to black, and then it went to african american and you know when you're talking or about to embark upon a subject that You may or may not know whether the person is sensitive about whatever term is being used or they want you to be politically correct. The best thing to do is just ask them, point blank, just ask. And then you'll find those people where it really doesn't matter to them. With the group that I'm working with and when we come together for the class on the 26th, what I'm going to invite the group to do is to suspend worrying about whether or not we're using terms that are politically correct because I want the group to be able to focus on putting into words their thoughts and their feelings and not to hold back because they're concerned about whether or not they're going to upset someone or be disrespectful. And so with a group, you can come to that agreement. And if for some reason there is someone in the group that is sensitive, then you ask them to set aside their sensitivity for the sake of communication.
2: Well, we're going to talk about nonviolent communication also as part of this interview, but first I want to remind folks that we're speaking with Reverend Josette Jackson She's in Eau Claire, the 19th through the 26th of February. She'll be speaking at Unity Christ Center here in Eau Claire. And on the 26th, which is coming up pretty soon, folks, she's going to be doing a workshop on Inclusivity 101, a valuable thing for all of us to heighten our awareness of. This is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, find us at northernspiritradio.org with more than 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find there are also connections to our guests. So when you want to track down Josette Jackson or Unity Christ Center, where she'll be speaking, follow the link on northernspiritradio.org. But that's true for all of our guests of the last 11 and a half years. Also, on the site, there's a place to post comments, and we do love two-way communication, and you can help us have that by posting your comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. Please click on Donate When You Visit because that's how this work is supported. It's not by government funds. It's not by corporations. It's because you, the listener, want to support it. So please click Donate When You Visit. Even before you support us, though, I'd ask that you support your local community radio station, the kind of stations that carry this program, the kind of stations that provide a voice for the community. They're so essential, and we need an alternative voice speaking out for us. So please, support your local community radio station. Again, my guest is Josette Jackson, and she'll be presenting in Eau Claire. One of the topics I really wanted to talk to you about and which led me to you, Sandy McKinney, who's the former minister here at Unity, she told me about you, and she said, nonviolent communication, you want to talk to Josette. Is nonviolent communication part of the substance you use in your Inclusivity 101 workshop?
3: Yes, it will be. Part of what we were actually practicing is empathetic listening and open and honest communication. And so nonviolent communication is a, excellent framework in which you can encourage people to do just that, empathetic listening and honest speaking.
2: I took a workshop in nonviolent communication at a National Quaker Gathering. It was really eye-opening and actually soul-opening for me, particularly between me and my wife, I, I found that there were ways that I was being violent in my communication, and that, without losing any of the content that I really needed to convey to her, I could do it differently. What is it about nonviolent communication that makes a difference to you? There's a whole lot of methods out there, uh, you know. There's there's active listening, and there's other ways of dealing with communication. What is it about nonviolent communication that makes it special for you?
3: I think it's complex, yet it's simple. And with nonviolent communication, it's easy for me to take the four basic steps of it and just walk my way through the steps, whether I'm dealing with something that's going on in myself, conflict within myself, or I'm working with someone else. To me, it's just a simple way to get someone listening to me, and also to get me speaking to someone honestly.
2: What are those four steps that you're talking about? And I I don't, of course, need you to give the full workshop here, but what are those four principles?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's see. So first of all, it is observation. Observation, feelings, needs, and requests. So I usually just go bring the words to my mind. When I say observe, talking about just observing facts. So if it, me and my son have a disagreement about where we're going to go to dinner, okay? He is huffing and puffing, taking his time, getting ready. I'm trying to get us out of the house because we have reservations, okay? So he goes. We finally get to the restaurant. Neither one of us is in a good mood because we're running late. We order dinner. He's not speaking to me anymore, and we get through dinner, and we get home, and we're still not speaking to each other. So then if we give him a little time, I will invite him to the table and say, let's talk about what's happened. So I will take it upon myself to share with him the facts, observe, what my observations were about the facts, okay, from my standpoint, my perspective. He is to listen. And then he will tell me what he noticed as far as facts. We're not talking about opinions. We're not par- talking about feelings yet, just what we observe. And then the second part is after that exchange has happened, I'm going to tell him how I was feeling. And I'm going to ask to, at this point for him to listen. So I use I statements. I used feeling words like I was angry, I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I wanted us to get to the restaurant on time. I was anxious because I was concerned about the way the hostess would look upon us arriving late. I was also anxious because I thought we would lose our table. And then after I express my feelings, then I let them know what it is that I need, okay, so that we don't have a conflict like this again. So for him, I would say, using I statements again, I need for you to be open and receptive when I make a reservation to help me honor the reservation by being on time. So that's an example of a need. And then the last step, after he's listened to my observation and he's shared his observations, listening to facts, after he heard my feelings, okay, and then after I told him what I needed, then I make a request. And when I make a request, I try to detach from the outcome. Because at this point, if he's being an empathetic listener, he's giving me eye contact, he's not interrupting me, he's really listening and hearing me, I am feeling like I have been heard. And so then I get to make a request. And so an example of a request in that situation would be, I would like for you to be ready in a timely manner so that we can arrive at the restaurant. At the right time can you or can you not do that and so he gets to think really honestly I'm proposing an honest request I detached from it he's heard me then he gets to decide whether or not he can honor the request or not and let's say in this example he says yes I will then At that point, there's usually a shift of energy. We're both not emotional anymore. I feel like I've heard he's listened. I've respected him by not hollering at him, merely talking to him in a conversational tone, and that I've empowered him to either make my request or not without making him feel guilty or shameful or less than.
2: And so that works with your son?
3: Yes, it works with my son.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and does it work with your, your granddaughters yeah. too, the, the babes, as I understand you call them?
3: Yes. Well, I, I try to simplify it for them, okay? I don't necessarily go through the facts, but I'm working on them to identify their feelings and to actually ask me what it is that they would like to have happen. So it's a really condensed version at this point at the age of six or seven. As we continue and as they get older, I'll certainly bring in the other elements.
2: And so you are training them. Do you actually get to spend a lot of time with them that you get to train them?
3: Yes, I do. It's very important to me to spend time with my grandchildren, the babes, as I call them. They do live in Denver, and I just feel like as they call me Nana. As their Nana, there is a certain amount of wisdom I can impart. In embark upon the grandchildren that their mom and dad may not be able to. And so, this is one area that is important to me.
2: So, nonviolent communication, I certainly understand it amongst equals. Is it also something that's applicable to other situations of inequality? You know, when there's a police officer facing you with a billy club and getting ready to hit your head, nonviolent communication probably does not achieve what you might feel that you want to achieve at that point. What situations is it appropriate for specifically?
3: Well, I wouldn't embark upon it if you were being threatened physically, okay? The best thing in that type of situation would be to remove yourself from harm. However, I have heard of a story where two people were about in a store, I don't know exactly what the situation that brought them to a shouting match, and there was concern whether it would become physical. It wasn't the two that started to apply nonviolent communication. It was a third party, okay? In that case, you still have to be careful because you don't want to get into the middle of someone that there may be a physical exchange. So to go back to your question, if you're being faced with bodily harm, your best thing to do is to put yourself in a situation where you're no longer being faced with bodily harm. And then even if the situation is unequal but there isn't physical harm, you can still take it upon yourself to use nonviolent communication. And you'll be surprised how someone who is escalating you can keep them from escalating or hollering at you, or it will help to calm them down.
2: I've got a story that might be somewhat applicable. Mind you, the woman was not using specifically nonviolent communication, but she was approaching in, I think, the spirit of nonviolent communication. This is a woman who I met through the Quaker meeting in Paris, France, and she was telling me about during the war, It's 30 years ago that she's telling me this, and she was a young woman at the time of the war. She said that German soldiers were often lodged in the homes, involuntarily, of French people. And so they had a soldier staying in their home. And, you know, the French people were used to being afraid of, intimidated by, and cowed by the German soldiers, She took a different approach toward it. She chose neither to be offensive towards him, but she also wasn't kowtowing to him. And so he noted that she reacted differently than the other people around her, that uh, other people pretended to be obedient, but you could just see the sneers behind their face. She didn't do that toward him. She dealt with him directly as another individual. And she said that she found that he treated her better because he was treating her as she would expect to be treated, as opposed to pretending and then treating badly behind the back. Uh, I think that it really makes a difference. People can see when you're approaching them with this nonviolent intent, nonviolent way of speaking with them. Have you sensed that people react differently to you?
3: Uh, Yes, I do. I'm an energy person. So when I walk into a room the first thing I kind of pick up on is the atmosphere or the energy whether it's positive or negative. And so what I find is that if I can come to a person in a positive respectful manner, okay? I set the intention that's how I would want it to be want to be treated. That's how I'm going to treat them that despite the way that they're treating me, okay? That if I continue, then there slowly becomes a shift in the energy. And if it goes long enough, they will slowly start to match my energy, the energy of respect, that they will see that I'm listening to them. They will start to listen to me. It's, it's almost an energetic thing. And like a, what is it, a, a tuning fork? You know, if you hit one tuning fork and bring another tuning fork next to it, it will slowly start to pick up the vibration, and it will match the vibration of the tuning fork that you actually hit. And I think people's energies will balance out just like that. And nonviolent communication is a uh, communication style that has an energy behind it. And sometimes people will pick up on the energy quicker than they will actually pick up on the words that are being exchanged.
2: As I said, Josette, I took a week-long course in nonviolent communication, and that's the only training I've had about it. So I am far, far from any kind of expert in it, although I really love the process. When you talked about the example with your son about presenting the four stages, I recognized all the four stages, And that framework seemed right. But when you talked about the needs, there was something that didn't jive with what I was taught about nonviolent communication. And again, I was taught by a Quaker leader who had studied nonviolent communication and was teaching a group of us Quakers. So maybe this had been presented somewhat differently. The thing that she said about needs And, you know, she gave us the big sheet of all these possible needs that we would be addressing is that it was important when expressing a need to not talk about your strategy for fulfilling that need. So that was very key, she said. So if you say, for instance, I have a need for safety, that's very different from saying I need you to treat me safely or something that there was no you in a need. A need is completely internal. And then you think about your strategies for getting it, which I think brings us to the fourth part, the requests that you mentioned. What were you trained about that? What have you learned about that? Does that jive with what you've been taught?
3: Yes, and I'm glad that you call me on it. (laughs) The practice of nonviolent communication is something that... You will evolve in over time, and I myself is not an expert, so I am learning through practicing, and a lot of times we learn best when we make errors. So you are absolutely correct that the need needs to be something eternal, and that it shouldn't include the word you. That's the easiest way to try to stay out of that trap. So if I were to reword my expression of needs to my son in that particular situation, I would say I have a need to be on time and I have a need to feel peace after a long day and I'm going to dinner. And so when I'm on time, I can experience that peace.
2: Yeah, part of my experience and again the place where I've most clearly used this and availed myself of it is with my wife. I found that in the past I had usually included it as my needs, you know, my feelings and my needs kind of were bound up. And it usually had a you in there. So that's an excellent way of phrasing it. There's no you in our need. It's that's internal to me. And when I my vision focused within me all of a sudden it took this burden off of her shoulders so she was able to be more present with me because otherwise it always looked like my needs were pokes at her Right, and being freed of that uh, sh- you could just watch i i was able to just watch her face soften and feel like she wanted to reach out for me which was very different from when i said well you know i I need you to make me feel safe, or I need you to make me feel loved. and that, That's like, whoa, that's a burden I can't take on. But I want to care for you. I want you to feel loved. So let's find strategies that work for both of us.
3: Exactly. It opened up communication as opposed to a person shutting down, your wife shutting down.
2: Now, I have a sense that nonviolent communication, I've just scratched the surface because I know the group's ongoing and the people continue this. It, it's a, really a mode of life for many people, mode of practice, just like people go to AA groups or 12-step groups. And you know, every week or multiple times each week, I think that there's people who meet nonviolently communicating. It's probably a wonderful atmosphere to sit in with everybody nonviolently communicating around you, not totally typical of our society.
3: That's right, yes.
2: So, on the again, on the 26th of February, you're going to be doing the Inclusivity 101 workshop here in Eau Claire. One of the things that you have that's distinctive is that. In the unity movement, it's a largely white movement. You know, if I went to, what's it called? African Methodist Episcopal Church. I think that's the name of the church, A-M-E, churches. They're predominantly African American. Unity has a really significant percentage of Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian, white people, whatever the proper term is. Is there... Yeah, I've confronted the same issue that happens within Quakers, although, you know, Quakers have this history of uh, being very active early on in elimination of s- slavery and very heavily involved in equal rights, all that kind of thing. And yet the percentage of Quakers who are African American is very minor. Uh, it's something that we constantly work on. How is that addressed within the unity movement? Are there particular barriers? within unity that make it less receptive, less comfortable for, less inviting to uh, African Americans with their experience in the American culture?
3: Uh, Yes, I think so. To begin with, I think one of the barriers has to do with the basic principles of unity. Most blacks in America come up through a more traditional religion, religious backgrounds of this such as Baptist and which describes to there being two powers in our world one is good and one is evil and if you recall that the church or religion has really been a strong backbone of the black culture in America so when you look at unity's philosophy Well, our first principle, there is only one power and one presence. And not only for black people in traditional religion, for a lot of people, they have a difficult time with just that principle in recognizing or accepting, opening and accepting that there is only one presence and one power, divine energy uh, that a lot of people call God. So that's... One area, I think, that black people may tend to stay away from unity unless they are able to release that doctrine of there's good and evil. Because when there's one power and one presence, then there's only good in our world. And then it's difficult to explain the atrocities that go on in our world. It's easier to put that responsibility outside of ourselves as opposed to taking on the responsibility, knowing that we in some way have a role. And the way that we have a role is that when there's one presence and one power, and it's good and it's in everyone, God energy is in all of us, then we have to open to how do the Horrible things in our world, example, rape happens or like genocide in Africa or even the Holocaust. How do those things come about? Who are responsible for those? Well, we have to take a look at ourselves, okay, and see how our humanness, how our error thinking that we are not good, that we are separated from God, causes us to act in unloving uh, ways. So another thing has to do with it's difficult sometimes to be in or to go places and to be involved in activities and organizations when there's no one there in leadership or in participation that reflects your culture or your preferences. So you tend to want everyone, we're all human, we feel most comfortable around people that look like us or speak like us uh, and even act like us. And we seek that connection and we're drawn to places that do have people that reflect who we are.
2: And I think you've tried to live that out in your life in some ways. I, I know that one of the things that's important to you is learning a second language and, and global travel, uh, really exposing yourself and your children to uh, the wider environment. How did those values become part of what's integral to Josette Jackson?
3: I spent, right out of ministerial school, in about 2003 through 2007, my first church was in Canada. So I spent four years in Canada. Now, Canada is out of the United States. And when I was in Canada leading a church, the culture there is different than the U.S., even though we're so close, they were so close to the U.S. And it was more inclusive, it was more accepting. And I was able to let go of the constant first thought in my mind that someone is going to see me as black. They're going to see me as my skin color. They're going to treat me different than my skin color. I was able to let that go, whereas in the U.S., it is always in the forefront of my mind. And when I was able to let it go, I experienced such a sense of relief and freedom. It's hard to put into words. And I I attributed that to being out of the U.S., out of the energy and the historic racism and slavery into a place, a country that was much more open and accepting and internationally diverse. And so it was from that... I shared that with my son and with everyone once I did return to the U.S., and immediately when I did return to the U.S., that burden of our history and the, the heaviness that you carry being a person of color, knowing that more than likely than not, someone is going to judge you, treat you differently because of it. And then we, when the grandchildren were born, my grandchildren were born, we talked about how we wanted them to be able to perceive the world differently, to be more accepting of other people, not just within our community, but on a larger scale, like internationally. Once you start, and that could be brought about learning a second language, because with learning a second language, you get exposed if you're, If it's more than just the words, more than just learning to speak, you learn to think in the language, you want to get exposed to the culture, okay? And then you start to see what you have in common with people, and you also notice the difference. But the beauty is recognizing that, oh, yeah, they're very much like me. They have same difficulties as I do. They have the same dreams that I do. And so that was the importance of exposing them to a second language early from six months. They were in immersion daycare. And then my son started traveling, started traveling to Hispanic culture uh, countries that the culture was Hispanic. He also went to Europe as well, had not made it to Africa yet and he recognized in his travels as well how people would embrace him differently than in the U.S., despite his color. And so right now he's setting up a trip for the babes to go to Guatemala and spend a month or two as he continues to work on his Spanish as a second language, and they, of course, will continue more so... Then their Spanish, well, just being around it and hearing it helps the immersion into the culture. And they will also interact with children their age from that culture. So it's kind of become a important value and passion for our family. I myself don't speak a second language. I've tried to learn, but it didn't stop me from influencing my son and my grandchildren. And it's something I tell all parents with their children. If they can expose them to a second language early, it doesn't matter whether they really learn to speak it or write it yet, it's about training the brains so when they're older they can pick it up easier. And then it's the getting used to being around people who are different than they are and getting comfortable and knowing that they can still connect.
2: Absolutely. Of course, I practiced that with my son. Actually, I made him an offer when he was in third grade. If he would let me teach him French so he and I could converse in French, mm-hmm. that I would take him to France. And so he agreed to that. And by fourth grade, a year later, he was of sufficient level. I took him out of school for two weeks and he and I traveled for two weeks around France. He had a great time. He loved it. And I did another time three years later. So he actually could converse in French by the time he was in fourth grade. So that that was really helpful. And it does help shape one's worldview. It helps broadens, I think, the worldview. So good for you for doing that. And I really appreciate that you're going to be enriching Eau Claire, my hometown. Of course, since you're over in Denver at one time and... Since you do like to travel and you have your motorcycle to travel on, (laughs) I assume you're willing to do these kind of workshops like Inclusivity 101. You're willing to do this in wider circles too, aren't you? If people who are listening, because, I mean, this program goes to 28 stations or so across the United States. Are you willing to travel if they wanted to get a hold of you?
3: That would be wonderful.
2: Would it be okay with you, Josette, if I had them contact me and I forwarded your contact information onto them as feels appropriate? You know, I can introduce you via email. Is that workable for you?
3: Yes, that would be wonderful.
2: Okay, folks, so if you're interested in having Josette Jackson, again, 64 Ways in 64 Days is one of the things she does. Inclusivity 101, and she's just a fun person. Maybe she'll even give you a ride on her motorcycle. I'm not sure. Just contact me at nordenspiritradio.org. If you look on my website, the email address is there. Just contact me, and I'll be happy to hook you up. So anyway, I, I really am, I think that Eau Claire is fortunate, particularly during Black History Month, that you're able to do Inclusivity 101 to enrich our local culture, our local awareness, our local ability To be love in the world, which I think is just absolutely central to how I would like to see the world doing. So thank you so much for coming here to offer that course and to spend some time here enriching our local culture and for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
3: And thank you very much for having me.
2: And folks, I have to also thank Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. And we'll see you next week.